0: the incomparable podcast number 27 march 2011
1: we're back on the incomparable podcast and i call this meeting of the book club to order and as last time our book club uh, remains i we dwindled to three but now we remain at three we didn't lose anybody this isn't a horror movie where they pick us off one by one or at least not yet not yet. Uh, so there's me. The voice you heard is Glenn Fleischman. Glenn, thanks for not dying in the uh, interim <laughs> and reading the book.
0: Thank you for not burying me in a shallow grave, as promised.
1: Yes, and also joining us is, of course, the heart of the podcast, Scott McNulty.
0: I always thought I was the spleen of
2: the podcast.
1: Yeah, the gizzard of the podcast.
2: <laughs> That's better.
1: That's right. All right. So... Uh, I'm Jason Snell, and I am your host for The Incomparable Podcast and The Book Club, and we are going to talk today about a book that was actually mentioned by Scott McNulty on the very first Incomparable Podcast, right?
2: It just takes us a long time to get to things.
1: Yeah, well, it you know, for us to all read the book, or at least all, by all I mean the three of us to read the book. <laughs>
0: the, you mean the, the people who are literate? Yes. who use the word to read.
1: That's right. So so the book is The Dream of Perpetual Motion by Dexter Palmer. Uh, very interesting book. I'm not sure where to start. Uh, we should probably summarize what this book is. Scott, do you want to take a crack at sort of what the book is about
2: uh, on a broad scale? Sure. Uh, so it's it's the main character is a guy named Harold Winslow. I think that's his yes. name? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, and he... it it So it has a framing story that takes place in a zeppelin
1: Yes, it's not really a framing story. Check no, because it keeps coming back and forth. You sort of start and end there, but there's also it keeps cutting to it in the middle at various points.
2: Exactly. So I guess
1: I guess the rest of the story is in flashback. I guess we exactly. Say. So
2: in the, in the chronological the chronological uh, uh, you know flow of the book, it begin in the present where Harold Winslow is uh, trapped on a zeppelin that uh, contains a perpetual motion machine, apparently, that uh, keeps it afloat. But he has a sneaking suspicion that it is failing, uh, and he is going to crash. And he is writing his life story, basically, on this zeppelin. And he explains, over the course of the book, why, in fact, he is trapped in a zeppelin. Uh, And you find out his dealings with a character named Prospero Taligent, who is, uh, I guess, his counterpart I guess or his nemesis not really his nemesis okay. but he's the alleged nemesis yes alleged he's, he's, well, a... he's a constructed nemesis
1: right right he's an industrialist and inventor and his frozen corpse is stored on the zeppelin <laughs> and
0: that's not a spoiler amazingly no. enough. that is not, a spoiler. is not and he has a
2: daughter uh who is I guess kind of a love interest maybe uh called Miranda uh and so the story is really Harold and Miranda – all about their – the relationship between Harold and uh, Miranda and uh, how Prospero interacts, kind of sets in motion a series of events that leads to the beginning of the book through to the end of the book.
0: Right. Does that make any sense?
2: No, that's – I think that was very good. That's okay. yes well well said That's and, and than
0: the author said it in fact
1: and the setting of <laughs> in the flashback is is we'll get to that glenn uh, awesome. is is zeroville which is a, a a fictional city in the 20th century but it's not the 20th century as we've come to know it it's this um i guess you could say steampunky kind of you know it's it's a it's the future as viewed from the past kind of thing and there are there are there was an age of miracles which has passed, and now things are more modern. But they're modern in a very strange way, where there are mechanical men and other strange inventions that seem to have all been created by this Prospero Talagin.
0: who is a a enigma of a character.
1: Yes, he's a very mysterious guy.
0: Yeah, it's it's steampunky. It's like it's like we're you know they have computers and the internet ostensibly, and combustion engines, um, but everyone wears little tiny round glasses too. There's a style. No, I'm sorry. There's a there's a style uh, aesthetic, a style and description of things that makes it sound like a sort of 18th century steampunk or 19th century steampunk, you know, uh, veneer. And yet, all sorts of modern stuff is there too. It's just there's not plenty. Things are sort of in short supply, but people aren't all starving. So it's not precisely. It's a dystopia, but it's not thoroughly horrible. It's just um, it's just different. I don't know. Right? I always,
1: it- I read the the. Sort of city of Zeroville had, you know, it was. It's like the movies, movies that are set in in the early twentieth century or the late nineteenth century, where it's sort of, well, we don't have a lot, but we've got pluck. By golly, it was that well, sort of thing.
0: There's enough of an economy that our main character, our, our antihero, can be employed as a greeting card slogan writer. Um, What's sort is of true. hilarious, by the way, as the greeting card slogan writer. um Uh, The way it's described in which he and his colleagues write them is precisely the way in which America Online used to construct its advertising slogans about a decade ago. And I'm not kidding. Like the description I'm reading this, I knew a guy who was involved in creating, you know, doing A-B testing where you test two versions of something or many versions of something to see what gets people to click on offers. And the process by which the greeting card, uh, you know, Get well and anniversary and holiday stuff is composed in the factory for which Mister Winslow works is is really I mean almost identical to what AOL did. I I wonder if he worked at AOL at that time.
1: It it strikes what struck me about the greeting card company, which is an interesting sort of. At the beginning, we we meet him and he's working in the greeting card company. Sort of, you get the sense he's a. He's a failed writer, and we actually then flash back, I guess, further and talk about his childhood and what's led him to this point. Um, what struck me about it is is have, working in the magazine industry, the, uh, you end up getting very displaced in time where you're working on your holiday gift guide mm. in the summertime. We had a summer intern this year who was working on our holiday guide, which always seems insane, but that's the way you have to do it.
0: Now at Wack Mac- at world magazine you decorate the office for the season in which the publications are coming out right because right now if <laughs> i recall correctly it's august in your office
1: Well that that is one of the amusing things about the about the greeting card company is that they like pipe in the 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 cold air uh, in the middle of summer, and make everybody freeze, and they put up Christmas decorations. But anyway, I, I've lived that sort of displacement where your head is in the holidays, and it's August. So I thought that was uh, I thought that was a strange little little bit. This was this book was written by Dexter Palmer while he was, I guess, procrastinating from doing his uh, his his PhD thesis. Um, you know, which I think is kind of interesting. So you know, not written by a. A young guy written by a guy who's probably, you know, 30. Uh, or a little bit over thirty, and and so he probably had some interesting life experiences that he kind of poured into this. Uh... Well,
0: it's in the modern ones too, like he obviously has some .dot com experience because there's so many aspects of this that, like I said, the AOL thing, the the magazine thing. There's like some part of access to publications, online things where he's retelling a story. Um, there's a bit in which he's trying to explain something to his sister by drawing diagrams on cards. It's a marvelous, but we should talk about more of that whole uh, part of town. Uh, but the the the, the notion of using sort of like PowerPointy presentations and using simplified things that try to explain everything to get people to buy into ideas is very dot-commy. So there's definitely – it's like a steampunk feel. And it's like this is what happened if if we had steampunk and the 2001 dot-com collapse actually caused like the collapse of society as a whole. And I read somewhere that Dexter Palmer was – I don't know if he still is – employed uh, writing questions for the SATs. Yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, well, that's the thing then. That's where the question thing comes from because it's that process of – or, or of a, like through the crucible, you come up with an idea and it is looked at by other people and crunched as something that is possibly recognizable to your original but has to be acceptable to these arbiters that are far, far higher levels above you.
1: So one of the strange things about the setting of this book is that we have this – like i said it's the early 20th century basically and it's the 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 age of miracles has passed but now there's this industrial age that's led by an industrialists and inventors like like prospero taligent except what what they invent is so strange like the when 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 young harold winslow well I guess there's a whole Willy Wonka, a whole Charlie and the Chocolate Factory thing happening here too, where yes. young Harold Winslow is at a carnival where where horrible things are happening to his sister. <laughs> by the way, I mean, there's so much. There is
2: too much. All, although
0: she's a she's a participant in that too. She she and is. She,
2: she got three dollars out of it. She yeah. should have held out for more, according to her yeah. father. Three
1: dollars in the tunnel of love um exactly. but he passes he passes a test he walks away from the rest of the carnival and goes up into this viewing chamber where he he these two guys show him the the tower and they show him Miranda out on her balcony on the tower um and and then he basically through this sort of like test that he passes which is again a, a, a very um rolled doll kind of thing right there it's a a a very cruel test also yeah it is a demon appears at his house that's sort of a robotic demon that wanders into his house and then parks itself there for a week (laughs) so strange and then eventually wakes up unfurls its wings and flies him to the top of the
0: tower it's just a terrifying terrifying scene it doesn't fly him in this beautiful way or jetpack it's like it squeezes him practically to death as he hurtles through the air yes. to land and smash on this roof. Unfortunately, none of the children are killed in the process. Well, it
1: it's turns out the marvelous. boys all got demons and the girls all got angels. And so that's the girls not foreshadowing. A, that's not foreshadowing at all. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs>
0: Um, I wanted to bring up a related point here Uh, Kafka let's bring up Kafka because that's my role oh please it's it's a time
1: for Kafka it's It's, time for
0: Kafka it's always time for Kafka it's that time play the Kafka horn Uh, that's right in the incomparable (laughs) where we
1: like to mention Kafka
0: actually there's a Kafka bell so uh, back in high school a teacher said to me in a class that in every Kafka story things are going along normally with the exception of let us say the metamorphosis in which the main character awakes to find himself transformed into a giant cockroach with the exception of that in every Kafka short story, things seem sort of normal and then a bell rings or some transitional sound or thing happens and then you go into the mind of the unconscious and everything is bizarre. Horses come out of this tiny opening or whatever. And so same thing is true. Like not that the world is very normal in Zeroville, but it's this, he goes through a door because he's the one who was willing to go through that door and then his world is never the same. Like that one decision he made, that point he took in which he sees unseeable things in this telescope and views, you know, this Miranda uh, that transforms in life into what you know essentially plays out until the end of the book. At the beginning and end, and the interesting thing is that that point
2: happens towards the beginning of the book, but he the character is already past that point because the book is a flashback, right? So right. <laughs> right. the book well, actually begins at that point, but that point happens happens later in the book.
1: One of the one of the things uh, I think. Uh, appropriately enough to mention now that I thought was fascinating about the beginning of this book is that he discusses uh, it, oh, just directly. He discusses how this is the story of how he got to be himself. And I've actually, it's one of the the highlights that I made in this book is um, we've do- decided that the only way to make sense of our existences is to set the stories of our lives down on paper to try to make one tale that shows how the 20th century turned Harold Winslow into Harold Winslow into Harold Winslow, into me, and how, the, and, and it's interesting because that's really how he views it: is that there's the guy who's on the Zeppelin, and he he looks back on his life and he says, "Well, I'm not the same guy who had the adventures with Miranda, and I'm not the same guy who was the kid at the telescope, but it is all his life." and And I, I thought that was really interesting that he's he's talking about. You know, these are the events that that string together in my life, and then, you know, they're chopped up almost like they're from different people's lives, but they're not. It's the one guy.
2: And that theme is further explored when, uh, at the end of the book, uh, Harold is going and thinking he's going to save Miranda, and he encounters uh, the portrait maker, whose job it is to create – so Prospero Talligent who has a weird relationship with his daughter uh, (laughs) – to say the least, um, least. has hired this sculptor to create the perfect representation of Miranda. Right. And so over the course of 25 years, he just continually creates sculpture after sculpture of Miranda, trying to capture the perfect representation. And he, he, he gets one and he shows it to Prospero and Prospero says, you'll get your money. I'll pay you for what I've contracted, but you have captured Miranda as she was six months ago not as she is now and so that whole theme of kind of people changing and you can never freeze time you have to continually go forward and everyone keeps changing i think runs through the book in many ways
1: right right although in the end i suppose you depending on how you view it you could say that they uh they did finally succeed um Right. But only at a horrible, horrible cost.
0: <laughs> well, I, I want to back up to the a, a different sort of metaframing mechanism, all right. b- too, which is that, you know, obviously, um, this is supposed to be, uh, you know, he's using character names from The Tempest, from Shakespeare's yes. The Tempest. And our, re- you know, our listeners, I'm sure, are all familiar with the play. Uh, I've seen multiple productions of it. And it's, uh, you know, it's one of, I think, Shakespeare's most interesting plays uh, written, if I remember, it was, was it his last play? It was near the end of his life. It's believed not, to
1: be the last play that last he play. wrote by himself, yes.
0: And it's fascinating because it's um it's you know it's got great it takes place on one island but it's got this great scope of uh, of magic and intensity of relationship yes. to father and daughter. There's the disnified missing mother as always. There's uh, a man taking all his powers and throwing them away.
1: Imagine for... the entire all six seasons of Lost. Uh, Squashed <laughs> down into
0: one play. That's and, sort of uh, it. I've been lost, I can tell that. Yes. <laughs> and so, so pro, you know, so Tempest, The Tempest is an incredible um, treasure trove that authors have plundered and alluded to for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, it, you know, a, a Prospero's Books is a fascinating as Peter Greenaway, uh, almost unwatchable as most of Greenaway's work, um, but. insightful into different aspects of the personality of the uh, magician, the creator, the sexual being, the relationship of a parent and child's role. Um, So it's this great source material. And I think that's one of the things that I, I I think he does uh, Palmer does best is he's not a slave to the plot of the play. And as you read the book further, you realize that this isn't just an accident. It's not the, the novelist Dexter Palmer, uh, imposing his will on a narrative structure and trying to recast it. In fact, as you get further in the book, you realize that it is his character, Prospero Taligent, who has imposed his will inside of the book on the characters. Yes. It's a great conceit that we don't know if his name was originally Prospero. He does not recall in the book he talks at some point about you know coming to being into existence as an adult. He does not recall having a childhood. He does not believe he had one. Right, Which goes
1: back he- to the whole idea that you you know I'm not the same person as that person. And in fact, there's Glenn. To to your point, there uh, one of the lines that I highlighted in the book is is when uh, Harold is talking to his sister, um, and he mentions Prospero Talent Um, she says, nah, he probably named himself that. He was probably a teenager looking through a book of Shakespeare plays or something doing a homework assignment, and he pointed his finger at a page and said, there, that's the name I want, and that's the person I'm going to pretend to be.
0: And and he called himself Taligent because he likes failed Apple-IBM joint programming That was my thinking,
1: yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) Who doesn't? So the play does not form a structural narrative. No. Um, And and in fact, it is at counter purposes with the play, the, the narrative of the book, and you see that this is part of Prospero Intelligent as the Puppet Master, as trying to fulfill a destiny as a magician as creating himself as a magician who can accomplish modern miracles is the only man left apparently in that world who can do that, and by doing so he's trying to reform the world into his own image and using the names like Caliban and Miranda and creating a giant tower that is his island in which he can create conditions of nature and illusion in, in the room that Miranda plays in, all of these things go into uh, into that abil- into that uh, that uh, character stealing the story as opposed to the novelist imposing it.
2: Right. And, and the critical point that, you know, so we mentioned that Harold has uh, a demon appears at Harold's home and takes him to this party. And at that party that Prospero is having for Miranda, he, uh, as his gift in quotes to the children at the party, oh, yes. uh, there are a hundred children. He promises that he will give them their heart's desire which is, in fact, not what they might want, but what he feels that they really want.
0: Uh, so he tells these – all the kids there. Well, he's – but he's he's right. He is right. It is true. It's horrible, horrible stuff that the children couldn't even predict. But what if someone plucked that idea out of your mind and said, the thing that you want most, even the thing you can't express, you would never express to someone else, is the thing that you'll get. That's that's a curse, not a, not a reward.
1: Yeah, and he exactly. – it's creepy. And he – he then proceeds to give that gift, not immediately to all the children, but over the the entire span of their lives, till the point at which Harold is the only one who hasn't yet received his heart's desire, because uh, Prospero has something very particular planned for Harold. Uh, which leads into also some of the strange things that happen, where we see the two men from the telescope again, and there's a fake kidnapping. Miranda. Or,
0: we think it's, well, it is fake, isn't it?
1: Yeah. There's a fake kidnapping, and then there's a and you know Harold is put in a position where he can rescue Miranda, and and at that point, um, in hindsight, Prospero says that was the moment when you were the happiest, is you got to make a decision to save Miranda, and of course the the sad sad irony is that he didn't make any decisions; it was completely fabricated. Um, you know, it, the entire thing is set up, and yet that's his—that's his happiest moment—is when he finally made a decision to save her, and he wasn't saving her, and it wasn't really his decision to make. But there's that moment where he sort of hesitates and is is pondering making that decision. That Prospero later says that that was your moment.
2: He hesitates for a full five minutes. Yes. While well, the guys
1: are that. like stalling in the other room and arguing with yes. each other. Another thing in that in that sort of latter part of the of the novel that I thought was fascinating was the idea that the um, there's a a rebellion against Prospero Talgen and his creations where a bunch of guys dress up like mechanical men, (laughs) but they're not; they're guys in mechanical men outfits. And then they kept kept
2: thinking of the Tin Man. Yeah, Yeah, they go beating people
1: up. It's like mobs of guys dressed up like the Tin Man. Uh, beating the crap out of everybody and and rioting.
0: Oh, sorcerer's apprentice thing! Like Taligent creates this role for his men to create this. You know, it's almost like Taligent's doing, um, you know, murder mysteries uh, uh, for hire. Like he gets his staff to to. Act out the roles. He's doing it, but he does that actually. As I think about it, he's got people acting out roles all the time in every story. Pro- Prospero Talgent is a storyteller, even though in the book what he does is um, he's creating machinery and wealth and manipulating things. But that's true in the play too. That Prospero tells stories. His words have power and become reality because he is the magician. Same role here, just with technology instead of ostensibly instead of magic. But so Prospero, you know, sets these men at a task. But then one of them gets the idea that. This this is what it should be, that he's lost sight of. He's, it doesn't even matter anymore whether he's playing the role or it's real. It has become real. He has transcended this role that was given to him, and he creates this mass movement even while Prospero is telling another story that drives people insane when the, and angers the entire world against him.
1: Well, And you've got um, you've got – so Prospero tells his story. We have this book, which is the story as told by Harold – as he's writing it while he's on the zeppelin, he Harold himself is sort of viewed as a failed writer um, who wanted to be a, wanted to be a novelist and told that to to uh, to Prospero at the birthday party. Um, but he ends up being a, a greeting card writer instead. Um, and and then with all of that going on, there's also this other funny moment where at one point at a particularly dreadful party. Uh, Harold is introduced to another young gentleman who wants to be a writer named Dexter Palmer.
0: Oh, right, right.
1: <laughs> it was very
0: it was tedious beyond yes, belief, right?
1: Incredibly boring. Yes, it's. I, um, I love that. I, I you know that's a. I love the that's like the uh, literary equivalent of Alfred Hitchcock uh, appearing in a cameo in his in his film. But I love that Palmer is merciless to his namesake and. In the book, he's a just an incredibly boring college guy that has nothing interesting to say, and that everybody is trying to get away from.
0: Um, I would like to talk about women. May we talk about women?
1: <laughs> oh, Even that's why. That's men? why everybody does a podcast, right? Is is to talk it's, about women, right? Absolutely.
0: Right. Well, I want to talk about the generative function. I want to be all you know deconstructionist, nineteen uh, eighties lit crit type, but not okay. precisely, but. Right. But, you don't want
1: to talk. About, you don't want to talk about the themes of the of, of storytellers and the writers, or you know, we we covered that. So I can check that box. Is that
0: what check that check? one off. Now we're gonna talk about writers the generative function. Check. Generative okay. function is usually assigned to him, even though it is a writerly thing, right? Prospero being the magician in the play in in the Tempest, Prospero has to defeat. Uh, was it Sycorax, the witch? It kills yep. her. And, uh, or puts her, locks her into a, no, kills her, sort of steals her son, who is then hates him. Uh, his daughter, Miranda, supplants Caliban, who is this awful creature, and Miranda is pretty. And Prospero has taken the generative function from the witch, and now, as a male, has sort of two generative functions. He has the function of magic, and he has the, you know, literal organ of generation, right? So I'm being very lit, But it's true, and I think, I wouldn't argue that Palmer is influenced by some of these same ideas, because in the book, there are no mothers, of course, Um, Winslow's mother is gone. She's been transformed. His father tells these insane stories. She may have been turned into a pillar of salt, which he probably just ran away. Um, his sister is crazy. His sister's friends are insane and ultimately lead to her, uh, spoiler horn, right? Spoiler, uh, her demise. Yes. Sort of. And you can't uh, talk about this book without
2: spoilers. Yeah, know it's all spoilers. And Miranda,
0: Has no mother, ostensibly. We don't know of any mother. She's adopted. And Miranda herself is an incredibly odd duck as a woman. She's not allowed to express her generative function. So there's all of this, like, there's no women. All the women are crazy or all the women are being suppressed, being locked in this little girl pattern. And then I find one of the most interesting underdeveloped characters in the book is Ophelia, one of his coworkers. I was going to say that, yeah. I love Ophelia. She's, like, six foot tall and beautiful and creative. And she's the only optimistic person in the book, right? She's the only person with any hope, and, and as a result, appears sort of ridiculous. Even though she could have this marvelous life, she's in the wrong time, city, place, novel.
1: And she's she's also she repels the advances of the idiot men who she works with, and <laughs> and yeah. When you mentioned when you mention no women in the book, I was going to say, well, there is Ophelia, and she's you know speaking of characters named right. for Shakespeare plays, um, and but she's and she's not like the other. Uh, female characters in the book. She's
0: not like anybody else in the book, basically. Well, that's true. That's she's true. she's awesome. I love Ophelia. I want like the book of her life, a positive novel in which there's creativity and she's living in a... I want alt-history Ophelia because she she is interesting. I mean, that is part of the problem with the novel for me is that is that you start out... I usually start... When I read a book, uh, I, I, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, I assume there will likely be interesting characters and possibly likable ones. But when I finished this book, I wasn't sure that I liked, except for Ophelia perhaps, anybody in it at all. And and that I always found that a disturbing phenomenon that I get to the end and I'm like, oh, I really wasn't – even the where my sympathies were with one or the other. Like Winslow is such an anti-anti-hero that I, I don't even like him at the end really. Not much.
1: Scott uh- – are you blown away by Glenn's analysis?
2: <laughs> you're speechless. I, I was trying to think if there are any characters in the book that I like. I mean, I like um, – I kind of like Prospero Talligent, even though I know he's not – you're not supposed to like him. But I feel sorry for him and like him at the same time because he mm. wants to – he spends so much time building the future and then he decides – Eh, this is probably good, and so he uh, wants to be frozen for a hundred years <laughs> in a machine that he builds around by sacrificing his daughter. But the machine is failing, so his life work is amounts to nothing. And one assumes, at the end, Harold tells us that hairline cracks are appearing around the glass that encases uh, the the frozen body of oh, uh, yeah. Prospero so you you know that it, it, things are not going to end well for anybody so he, it's kind of sad that he spent so much time trying to improve the world and he does he i don't know if he improves it or not but he tried to and it kind of turns it into this this horrible place that no one is happy in uh, and you know, mechanical men are going running rampant. And uh, well,
1: the mobs of the mobs of the fake mechanical men are reaching the rooftop of his tower. So that basically, people are rebelling against his technology as he's wants to depart on the zeppelin. But he asks to be shot dead first, so that he can <laughs> then be cryogenically frozen. He has a plan,
0: you see, and, and it's and all revived.
1: It's all falling apart. But in, in the end, the perpetual motion machine is running down. It's not a perpetual motion machine. In the end, and uh, his his cryogenic chamber is failing, so it all it, you know it all comes apart for for Prospero, despite all of his best intents. What? Oh, and and we should mention his other creation, Caliban, who is Caliban. basically
0: With, before. Before that, though, oh, I want to circle okay. this back to the generative function thing. Is that? Oh yes, please let's is do that when that <laughs> when men seize? Okay, so this is no, but this is. I think this is intended. I mean, there's a lot of a uh, uh, lit crit style stuff in the book, so I think he's trying to get a reading that is something like this. When you know, it, when Prospero seizes the generative function, right? He's gotten you know, women produce babies, men are supposed to start the process. I mean, that's it, in the most superficial way I can render that, right? And Prospero, intelligent by having seized that function by by trying to generate everything, he generates is imperfect. He cannot create his child. He adopts her. He cannot create a perfection of her. He must destroy her to create his wrong, imperfect vision. His dynamos fail. His zeppelin fails. His plans ultimately come to naught because, as a man, he is not allowed to create things that are new. I mean, that's the structure in which a lot of this criticism occurs, and and I think that's intentional. That he lacks the you know empathy. He lacks not just sort of womanly feelings, but he lacks the component. There is no partnership with it. He is a dominator. He's trying to take control. He's trying to seize from nature or whatever. And, and he's inevitably going to fail as a result. And I mean, that's set up also early in the book. Uh,
2: Har- <clears throat> Harold is listening to uh, a radio uh, in his bed. And he's flipping through channels. And we hear bits and pieces of the broadcasts. And one of the broadcasts is coming from the top of Taligent Tower, where Prospero is unveiling uh, an airship that he thinks they've gotten the king's worked out of. And so the mayor of right. uh, Zeroville and, like, Miss Zeroville board the, the aircraft in, you know, pageantry, and uh, it then explodes. And you, <laughs> yes. they all, all die, and Prospero's like, <laughs> my bad. Uh, so he he I've forgotten that already. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not good. And then there are other—what uh, was it? Oh, and then in that same scene, there is, on the radio— there's an interview where a presenter is talking to some scientist and he's like, oh, we've just created this drink that you drink and it will give you a full meal and you won't have to worry. And the woman's like, oh, that's amazing. And so she drinks it and she says, oh, I, I taste the steak. And uh, the guy's like, oh, yeah, that's what you're supposed to taste. And she says, oh, I feel so full. And the scientist is like, yes, the, it works well. And then she says, oh, my God, I'm feeling over full. What have you done to me? And then the transmission ends, uh, which I think is
0: very nice <laughs> willy wonka thank you willy wonka again so we're, we're getting you know it's not not accidental
1: no no not not there's definitely that yeah feeling. but again
0: failure you know nature trying to subvert nature the failure you cannot make things you can't even there's a scene in a typesetting shop near and dear to my heart of course so even though they have the internet they're apparently still setting type by hand which i love with lead type so it's great contrasts uh, even though i may be doing that in a class that I'm taking right now i am doing that purposely not as a commercial venture and uh, are you, the robot ironically I'm doing yeah I'm doing it ironically when my fingers are crushed in the rollers those are ironic fingers being crushed by the spread of technology the March uh, the but so the scene with the he's where Harold's job is to sit there to make sure the typesetting metal men don't go insane or berserk while they're doing routine projects overnight um, is and then he tunes in here's Miranda broadcasting but again it's like it's just this nothing can be Nothing goes right in the book. Even, you know, Taligent hasn't really improved everyone's life. In fact, he's sort of increasingly ruined everyone's life in the world by automating functions that were performed by workers that now have no jobs. And um, he's he's not seen as a force of good, not just that he is evil or not. He's sort of beyond morality by being, you know, and so in charge of things. But he's just not actually really helping anybody, Not not even himself in the end.
1: And to get to the title of the book, not to bring it all the way around to that, but mm. it's the dream of perpetual motion, right? right. And it, it, right away, we're told that the perpetual motion machine is Probably, although it's been promised. Oh no, no, it's a perpetual motion machine. It really, it's going to just keep on running. Um, Harold is up there in the zeppelin saying, "Yeah, it's not. No, I'm getting closer to the ground here." So the the very dream of perpetual motion is a failure, and it is the sort of the crowning achievement of Prospero Taligents' um, high aspirations, and um, and it, it is the crowning failure of his life.
0: Oh, I think there's a mystery encoded in that part, too. I wanted to ask you, fellows because uh, somewhere, I don't know, is it two-thirds away in the book? Uh, there's a point at which the book, I think, becomes enormously better. It becomes sort of an action story, and I and I really zoom through the rest of the book at that point. And I think it's about this point, uh, it's ten years before the Zeppelin scene, if I'm remembering right, and... Uh the there's a, a report that comes out that says uh Prospero just told the staff of his company that he is working on, you know, devoting his aims to creating a perpetual motion machine and was it thinking machines, machines that really thought, am I remembering that right? I don't remember. But th- I think these are key points because at the end of the book, as is revealed, uh Harold believes that Miranda has been transformed, that she's been physically transformed by a process he doesn't want to describe because words are killing things, that by describing it he destroys the thing that's been created again with you know, the generative stuff. And uh he- so she may be the perpetual motion machine, and although she is running down, we don't know by what process she works. But I thought part of what was hidden in there was the announcement that was made or leaked from inside the company. I assumed from the very first moment I opened this book, when I first read about Miranda being ostensibly bodiless, he cannot find her. He doesn't know where she is in the Zeppelin. She is talking continuously without cease, and he will not speak to her. When I read that part, I'm like, oh, well, has probably turned into her into some kind of machine brain, and she's running the Zeppelin, and that's the great secret. And at the end of the book, I was like, maybe not. And then I'm like, well, maybe that was what's supposed to be intended. She's not only become this creature that is beyond description, that maybe breathes hydrogen, for all Harold knows or understands, but that she is also mechanical. W- what do you think about that? Am I reading too much in?
2: Well, he does create uh, a mechanical Miranda when they're, uh, right. there's this, the playroom, right? And Harold and Miranda play together in this playroom, and uh, Harold's favorite part is when uh, so Prospero also has, sends mechanical monsters in for them to fight, uh, in you know, so they can pretend to fight him. And Harold p- protects Miranda. And at one point, Harold. Uh comes across Miranda, and she's crying, and she says, don't touch me, don't touch me, and she's ripping out her hair and bleeding all over, and Harold doesn't know what to do. Uh, and then Miranda peeks out from behind a tree and says, silly, you were trying to save the monster. Uh, <laughs> that was a great moment. Uh, so, I mean, clearly, he could have created a mechanical Miranda. And, uh,
1: but it, thank- it, wherever Miranda came from, though, I mean, by the end, she is essentially his creation, because he's, right. he's, re- he's yes. taken her apart and turned her into the the, his his ultimate invention the the perpetual motion machine, which right. which is you know his control he doesn't want her to change he doesn't want her to become a woman um, that doesn't go so well and so then he 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 decides he's gonna transform her into something else which uh, you know apparently doesn't go so well either although Glenn something you mentioned uh, you know the way the book ends is that Harold starts he says hello to Miranda, right? Which he's refused to speak to her the entire time. And that's all she wants. So there is that question too. In the end is, is, you know, is that a, is that important? Is that a transformative act that, that maybe what's going on in the Zeppelin, you know, is happening because he refuses to speak to her and acknowledge her presence.
0: Oh, so that's a very good... I hadn't thought about that, that she's running down because, uh, right, that you need the interplay. That's why Prospero wanted him on board. He didn't need uh, Harold to be on board, but he wanted to fulfill his dream. But he'd already sort of fulfilled his, you know, dearest wish earlier, sort of what he says, the happiest you've been. I mean, I like the whole bit where Prospero intelligent says, I'm not giving you what you want. I'm giving you... What does he say? It's, I'm not giving you... Uh, uh, something that makes you happy. I'm giving you what you want, which is right. a different yeah. thing. Right. And, but uh, then
2: so Prospero sets it up that Harold doesn't want to save Miranda. He wants that moment where he's about to save Miranda. That's right. And yes. so that's why he's on the Zeppelin. He can never find her. He knows she's there.
0: Oh, he's always he's in he's anticipation. Right. Exactly. Well, there, there's also, by the way, the mechanical thing. I was thinking um, there's a part when he and the uh, portrait maker uh, Prospero and the portrait maker are spending what eight months disassembling, physically disassembling Miranda and doing terrible things to her. As they say, um, he says at some point the portrait maker describes Prospero saying like, "Well, now, now you have ethics about the information sent matrix, you know, meaning ostensibly the brain." And I'm thinking, well, that's the point at which they have eliminated her. That they have, you know, they've disassembled Miranda to the point that they have removed, you know, her brain. Maybe they've digitized it. Maybe they've done something, but that's and it's ineffable. We don't know. But where he's transformed her into something different, I'm thinking no, it's not something as simple as he made her an android, but that he took her out of the realm of you know pure physicality uh, t- to transcend into you know this flying machine, whatever it does, the in- the impossible perpetual motion machine.
2: And I think you know, thinking about this now, Prospero has spent his entire life changing the world. So that he could stop it, right? Because everything mm. he, he wants to stop Miranda from growing up, and he wants to stop himself from dying. So he he's constantly using change in order to freeze a moment in time.
0: That's very good. I, I have a degree in English. Oh, huh. Bravo. My degree is in pretentiousness. Can you tell? <laughs> oh, Masters. art. I'm sorry. It's in art. I'm sorry. Same same thing.
1: So, uh, I'll ask the guy with a communication degree. <laughs> I will try something. to communicate to you. This book – no, this book is 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 hard rowing at some points, right? Yes. I mean I, I would find that it was – I would read a chapter and I would still have 20 more minutes on my bus ride and I would say to myself, I, I can't read another chapter right oh, now. Oh, good.
0: You too. I, I had the hardest time getting through the first two-thirds or three-quarters well, of this book.
1: and It wasn't as if I was having a hard time reading the chapter. It's just after a chapter was complete, there was so much in it. And I felt almost exhausted. Like I can't, yes. no, I can't do yeah. more of this right now because it's, it's, you know, it's very dense at points. Um, I think actually beautifully written, um, although at at points that you could argue overwritten. But yes. I, 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 but I really liked that he was, you know, it, it's not often you read a book that that where the author is trying so hard to write interesting things in interesting ways and I really appreciated it and at moments I was really taken by the beauty of what he was writing just the way he was writing it but I would you know it was so it was not a slog in the sense that I was in the middle of a chapter and I was my eyes were crossing and I just couldn't bear to go on I'd get to the end and I'd be like wow I need to. I'm not going to read another one till tomorrow because I need to take a little break and think about what I just what I just read. So that that goes on and 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 it does pick up as you go. I think that's true, Glenn. That 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 things start to move a little bit faster. I kept waiting for more Zeppelin. I wanted, you know, it's me. I wanted more Zeppelins. Um, But then at the very end, when you are reaching the climax, and it's literally as Harold is climbing to the top of the tower. We have these two encounters:
0: the giant male tower. I'm sorry, the so, so, penetrating yes. member, piercing the sky. Yes, Excuse yes, me, thank you. Glenn, yes, All we right. got mm-hmm. it. <laughs> I didn't get that. Um, <laughs> they, he's trying to make the point. Palmer was uh, so.
1: So he's ascending the tower, and we have these two encounters with these guys who tell stories, and they're kind of long they're fascinating, but they're they basically the plot is paused so that we can go back in time from a different perspective, and you've mentioned the one, which is the portrait maker who mm-hmm. creates these sculptures, and then it eventually aids and abets Prospero in the modification of Miranda into the perpetual motion machine. But there's also the guy who works in like the coal pit. Oh my god, I love oh, it. Oh yes, no, on it's the first
0: floor. Yeah, the coal pit being, of course, at the top of the building, the most sensible place to eat it from, or something. That's where you would put it. A coal but pit. Sure,
1: I put, I put all of my, yeah, coal all my smoke all and carbon-based workers are always on the 101st huh, floor, on the on the top floors of the building. But anyway, it, that, when we haven't talked about that, that's another. I mean, you know, you grind the story to the halt a little bit, to a halt. Um, but uh, that was that story seems to be basically the story of the the truth of Miranda, or at least as much of a truth as Miranda was allowed to have, which is that she has these repeated sexual liaisons with Mm -hmm. the the guy who works in the coal fire pit room whatever it is Uh, and i thought that was interesting that we we hear that story and then we hear the story about um you know the the perfectionist vision of prospero and how he wants to have miranda appear and it's preceded by the story that's really the real down and dirty story of a guy who's you know covered in coal dust and and this girl comes to him and they take a tumble in the in the piles of coal and have over and
0: over him. again yeah. covered in coal dust. And it's just sort I of fascinating I've, I've never read a, a hot sex scene about making love on a coal mountain that's pretty interesting. <laughs> you Sorry. haven't you haven't but, lived check like, oh, there are many men who shovel coal here Coal and Mound Sex master.
1: Check. Finally, I can check that one oh. off. Zeppelins and the Coal Mound Sex Scene.
0: Coal mound if, sex if that doesn't get you to buy this book, I don't know <laughs> what's going. <laughs> to. Hey, we missed. Uh, if I may interject, as I have known to do, um, Astrid. We haven't talked about Astrid much. Yes, yet I,
1: I, I, uh, she's on my list. Uh, so Harold's sister, Astrid, who is a uh, an artist,
0: a, like a performance artist, who is uh, like Ariel, Ariel from the play, the the sprite, the magical sprite in the play. All right, Arielle. well done. Well played. Okay, thank you.
1: And and she's an artist, and she's surrounded. Um, she's surrounded by absolutely horrible, um, horrible sort of arty people. And actually, I loved. I loved those scenes, and they they um, they mm-hmm. can make your eyes cross because he he doesn't just say you know they said that's usual pretentious crap that people say at these things he has whole pages of dialogue of the pretentious crap <laughs>
2: he he he, oh he writes the pretentious crap for them and
1: it's it's and i loved it because it made me laugh so much because i went to I, I like i said i have a communication degree and it's the kind of degree you get when you hear people talk like the people in at astrid's party and I actually, if I can if I can quote from it briefly, Glenn, if you'll Please. allow me.
0: Well, i just point out, you have art, communications, and English. I think each of us knows precisely the particular flavor of bull yes that's involved. It's, what it's Astrid's
1: true. doing here is liberating language from the patriarchy. Is this how critics talk? Harold's idea of an art critic is someone who wanders through a gallery and waves his arm in the general direction of a painting while saying, Notice the diagonal. Astrid, <laughs> Charmaine says, Uh to Harold, realizes that we live in a world in which an enduring patriarchal hegemony, there's my favorite word from com class, oh, yep. has transformed the woman's voice into a commodity by representing her own language and giving it a body, as Astrid has done here, she embraces that patriarchal desire to commodify, while subversively reaping the benefits of that commodification.
0: Oh! That is so it, perfect. And it's also accurate if you strip all the garbage oh, away oh, from it it's, it's a not, perfect description.
1: It's not BS I mean, it is. it is, yeah. it is it is phrased in the right language and yet she's not saying nonsense. She is saying no, exactly right. what Astrid is doing. So Astrid's art ends up being something that she sort of lifts from Harold in their conversation in the silent right. uh, bar, which we also should talk about oh, the silence um, bar. But before we get to the silence bar, uh, it's fascinating because she ends up building a, a, a sound, a, a sound sculpture. Cause Harold goes on this rant that, you know, again, I mean, there's so much here. That we keep we keep bouncing around. He goes on this rant about sounds and how oh, there are more sounds, and every right. day as the industry creates new things, that there are more sounds. And at some point, he's concerned that that all the sounds will cancel each other out, and then oh, there'll be. Billions of machines everywhere, and it'll be completely silent because
2: it's nothing but noise. And, and he can't. He wants to shut out all the sound. That's a kind of a,
0: a go a theme. He, that's he how slews. he goes
1: up in the telescope. He, he wants goes to up escape in, the noise of the exactly. And
0: Prospero calls back to that when he says, this is how you get away from the noise. My Zeppelin is perfectly quiet. Yeah. Yes. And, and of course, over time that breaks down and the noise creeps into the Zeppelin, too, as the perpetual motion machine. And then Harold, Harold has a series of recurring nightmares where –
2: The virgin queen is going to commit suicide and he he, only he can save her. And in the first dream, he's supposed to say the exact word that will save her, but he can't think of the word. And in the the second iteration of the dream, she's at the edge. He's about to say – he's trying to say something to her and then he notices an exact uh, negative of himself who is saying – what he's saying backwards and canceling it out so that the Virgin <laughs> Queen cannot hear anything. Well, and then,
0: the, you know, Astrid is, is pre capitulating. <laughs> you can't recapitulate it. She is anti capitulating what happens to Miranda is that it, it, although but Astrid has the means of her own destruction in her own hands and she regrets it ostensibly, that she, um, you know, she she uses the pizza delivery guy, which I love. Yes. Again, the male setting action into motion. Yes, she tells but, him to come let's in.
1: Also, let's also talk about how I, I love the. the as we get all pretentious and lit lit critty here, um <laughs> the unpretentious thing that kicks off the pretentious suicidal art experiment is she orders a pizza. I don't and and I think And the pizza that's- delivery boy opens the door and kills her and sets off the whole thing. And I love that juxtaposition. That's so yeah. great that it's just this, you know, kind of uh he well he's he 's kind of hot for her and he and and he 's really excited to to meet her and and then he opens the door and and she dies
0: but and that 's the thing is that you know, I, I think that 's sort of part of why Astrid is brilliant also is like astrid well i guess i I should add Astrid to Ophelia because uh you know and I should say that 's funny I was saying originally there are no you know there 's very few women in this book but all that Miranda, Astrid, and Ophelia are all aspects and all fascinating. Astrid is a hoot because she's slightly insane. She speaks the truth. She does things that are unacceptable, and she just does them. That is what she means to do. So when she builds this unbelievable contraption, that's what that's like, you know cancels noise out, creates this thing, and then and then burns her alive, encasing her in bronze at the same time. Um, and she freezes the moment, right? The noise stops. And she stops aging. She is eternally preserved in the same form.
1: Right, because she's bronzed. She gets right. bronze pointed, po- poured over her, and she's permanently fixed.
0: Okay, so here's my question. I read this a few times, and I can't tell. I'm sh- Maybe just meant to, for it to be ambiguous. I don't say that there is an answer. But, you know, her pretentious friend tells the police, she said, I don't have the phrase in front of me, the smi- bo- a buttered spleen, right? Isn't that what she says? Right. And mm-hmm. the police say, well, the pizza delivery guy said she said, "Stop the machine." Yes, meaning stop yes. the descent. But did she regret it? Did she get her friends that, locked her into the cage? That's how I. That's how I sat read there it. There for four hours with her, but she told the pizza delivery guy to come in. So, and my question is, did she regret it at the last moment, or did her friends kill her?
1: I, I, the way I read it, is that she regretted it at the last minute, like anybody would. It's the, it's that you know, she she comes up with this great idea, but faced at the moment of her own death. She begs to not die, and it's too late. The, the art world is looking on, and it's time for her performance. Buttered right. spleen!
0: And,
2: and that becomes part of the performance, right? Because that is the that title moment. of this episode, isn't it? Buttered
0: spleen? No. Oh, all right.
1: Oh. I'm curious what it will be then. I, I, I wonder myself. So let's talk about the silent bar, if you don't mind. I will that shut was up now. Another nice, another nice thing. The, um, they, go to a, they go to a part of town where people don't communicate. Is that is that right? Except well, no. through
0: yeah, not, not, not orally.
1: Right. right, they they communicate with uh, written uh, and hand gestures. Right, is that it?
2: Yeah, and I think that's it's the whole idea again of that the people want to escape the constant sounds that are around them, so right. they go to the silent bar so they don't have to. Hear one another, but they. And Astrid
1: still- wanders in and just starts talking really loudly, and and everybody is looking at her and is offended. But but uh, Harold's got his little pile of cards and he starts drawing around, and 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 that ends up being the source of her inspiration for the uh, for the uh, art project.
0: Right. First she first she takes the cards and then turns them into what, paintings or statements, right? Which is what gets her the show to start with.
1: Right. Right. That where he meets Dexter Palmer. <laughs> right. And here's all the pretentious dialogue about Astrid's art.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. As we've talked about this book, I like this book more unpacking it into all of its component elements, much as if I were redesigning Miranda to suit my own images, Ooh. than I did when actually reading it, I think. I was it's just about to ask
2: if if you either of you enjoyed this book, uh, or if you liked it, I should say.
1: That's a good question. Glenn, did you did you like—I mean, I've already said that it was a bit of a trial at times for me to— get through a chapter and then I'd have to take a break but did you like reading it
0: I did not enjoy reading the book until we got to the last like I was saying last quarter or so and then I I zoomed through that it felt like a different book even though Informant was the same but I think he finally had to set all of the machinery, I think the first three quarters or so of the book, he's building the mechanism. I'm sorry, I'm being so pretentious on this podcast. He's building the mechanism. He's putting all the clockwork into position and telling us all the pieces that have to come together. And you're sitting there wondering, when does this whole watch start ticking or does it fall to the floor as a bunch of gears? And then once that sets in the motion, then I'm like, I zoom through. I mean, I think it took me five or six weeks literally in like several page increments to get first, through the first three quarters and the last part I read in a you know an hour or two. So I I I wouldn't say I liked reading it, but I'm I like thinking about the book more after having read it than I did, re, uh, you know, interpreting it while I read it.
1: Yeah, I I think I would say the same thing. Is that is that while I was reading it, I really enjoyed the writing. Um, it's not every book I read. It's actually pretty rare that I sit there and I think, wow. This is, you know, this is beautifully written, and that was really what I kept thinking: is this is a weird book, but it's kind of beautiful. I mean, the, and the writing is beautiful, and the setting is so detailed and strange. There, it is a little off putting, and the characters are kind of off putting. And like I said, I, I it was so dense at times that I felt like I needed to take a break uh, and not just kind of go to the next chapter, but I needed to actually like decompress a little bit before I could and and unpack what I had just read before I could move on, Mm. which is much more of the kind of, I think you get that from a book that you were assigned in college in a lit class. It is that kind of feeling of this is not just a page turner. This there's a lot of stuff going on here, but in the end I did like it. And you know, what I told my wife as I was reading it is I am reading this crazy book, but it's kind of beautiful, but it's really, really strange. Um, Not like anything I've really ever read, although it's got pieces of a bunch of different stuff, right? All the way down to to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, So I'd say I liked it. Uh, Scott, what about you?
2: Well, I think that it was – so I read it when it – like a couple months after it first came out last – so probably about a year ago today, in fact. Um, And I thought it was the best book I'd read all year. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I do not – reread books generally mm. uh just because i don't uh but i uh, in preparation for this podcast i reread about 75 percent of the book uh and i enjoyed it even more i i think that mm. it it it's just that i think it's a great book but i don't and i recommend it to people but kind of you know uh, hesitantly because i don't think that it is for everyone um like, I, I told my wife she had to read it, and she read the first, like, ten pages and said, I'm not reading anymore of this book.
0: <laughs> I think Dan Morin did that. Which is fair. I read this book for you, Scott. I read this book for you. Thank you, Glenn. <laughs> but I really, really liked it.
1: Yes, well, I I, I liked it. I, I definitely did like it, but it is a challenge, and it is not the kind of book I yeah that I would recommend for somebody who just wants a fun book to read.
2: I, I, oh, no. If you well, want a fun book I, to read, don't read this
0: book. I'm, no. I'm glad that you suggested it, though, because it is also, it's not the kind of book, I'll often stop and get stalled in books like this, like I did, and the notion that we were actually going to talk about it made me read it, and I'm glad I did. I mean, even books that I hate, I'm sometimes often glad I read, because if they've given me fodder for thought, that's good enough. If I yeah. come up with new ideas, new ways of thinking, this Book, I certainly found fascinating, even if I couldn't say I exactly like it. So, I think, thank you, Scott.
1: It's the very definition of a good book club book. It's the kind of book that you need to be, I think, maybe motivated to read a little bit and then have the promise of being able to kind of discuss it and unpack it with a group later because it really, I think, benefits from. Walking through all of the different things, like we have done here, uh, I think I think it really helps because there is so much in there. And if you just kind of flip through it and then and then move on to the next thing and don't really consider it, I think you're missing the best feature of this book, which is there's a lot to to, to mull over afterward.
2: And there's still a lot of stuff we haven't even talked about. I mean, there's a there's a lot going on in this book.
0: Is this his only? This is his only book so far, too, right?
1: I believe so.
2: I That's I pretty so.
0: amazing. This is Although like perhaps uh, some
1: there's some SAT. Tests that you can
0: <laughs> like, get. You, you may <laughs> like, have read his work. Yes. Well, this is like Harkaway, uh, Nick Harkaway, um, the Gone Away World. That's his only book that's out now. I think I told you folks. I for uh, Economist article, I talked to Nick Harkaway. He was a lovely, lovely fellow, and he said something about having three other novels. I think two of them completed. That uh, ostensibly we will get to see in print at some point <laughs> yeah. in the near future. So one hopes Mr. Palmer also is in the same situation. That there'll be more. He hasn't shot everything he's ever thought about in a single novel. Uh, you know? And during our harkaway uh podcast i gave him a hard time for
2: uh writing like showing off his writing prowess uh, mm. which i think is in fact what the dream of perpetual motion the entire book is all about really and so i liked it in this book so i am i'm acknowledging that i am a hypocrite
1: we will now move on to that portion in the show that i like to call what are you reading where i ask the musical question what are you reading glenn what are you reading
0: i am going to briefly mention four things very briefly. Right. Um, I went back and read Charles Yu's, uh, uh, after we did our Charles Yu uh, podcast, uh, read Third Class Superhero, and I hated the book. And we could talk about this another time. It's, um, I thought his uh, novel, the um, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, if I'm getting the title right, I thought was uh, uh, was fascinating and difficult and not necessarily successful. Third Class Superhero has sort of one good story and a bunch of uh, masturbatory exercises in writing that are like How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, except much less successful successful. successful so I'll say that about that I'm also reading I've started to read I have a problem finishing some of the books I've started recently where I get to a point I'm you know this happened with uh with uh Dream of Perpetual Motion, where I got through thinking of Scott all the time. I got through the book to a point where I liked it so much, or as much as I did. And um, I'm reading Greg Bear's Hall 03, um, which is starting out very tediously. I'm about 40 pages in, and I'm yawning and trying to figure out how to get further along. And I'm also reading To Say Nothing of the Dog uh, by... Ah, Yes, and I I'm finding that first part a little hard going, but I am believing that it's going to pick up because there are lots of indications. It really is. I, I think I'm getting I'm through the like <laughs> in the uh, dictionary definition part in which the structure of the universe is being explained to me, and once that's through, I feel like there's a story there.
1: Once they're punting on the Cam River. <laughs> You. It is gold. <laughs> so he's still,
0: in a, he's still in the hospital, and I'm waiting for him to get out, that, just right. that far in. And then finally, I'm reading a James Tiptree Jr. biography. This is uh, one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time, who led a double life, who wrote under a male name, was thought by many of her peers to be a male. It was actually written by Alice B. Sheldon, who has an extraordinary life story, including uh, many trips to Africa with her explorer parents as a child in places that know person, no European or even outside person had ever visited in the early 1900s. Extraordinary person, extraordinary writer, extraordinary death. And I hope we will in the future get enough people to read. Uh, I need to reread Tiptree's uh, exquisitely aching stories and, um, and do a, a podcast about her. And I even have a special guest in mind who would participate with us, who knows the stories quite well and used to judge the James Tiptree Jr. annual awards. And that's what I'm reading.
2: Very nice. Scott, what are you reading? I am reading uh, less books than Glenn, uh, only one because I'm an underachiever apparently. It's, but it's on 85 Kindles at the same time. <laughs> That's true. I can read it in many different places, uh, so I went. I'm reading me. The Wise Man's Fear, which is by, by Patrick uh, Rothis. What, what's The Wise Man's Fear? The Wise Man's Fear, which is a sequel to The Name of the Wind.
1: Ah, oh, The Name of the Wind. Dan Moran, if only we were here, he loves that book. I love that book as well, uh, but but sadly Dan doesn't get to come
2: on the podcast because he didn't read the Dream of
1: Perpetual Motion. <laughs> he, he doesn't sucker. know how to read. So and now
0: we taunt him. Ha ha! <laughs> and
2: so so it is a highly anticipated sequel. It just came out. Is this uh, fantasy? This is fantasy. This is uh, you know nine hundred pages of fantasy. Wow! Hmm. Uh, and it took him apparently. So I'm looking at Amazon.com, and the first book came out in 2007. This one came out. A couple of days ago, so
1: Dan and I were talking about this um, yesterday. In fact, that that it's hard. You're an unpublished novelist. And you work on a novel for 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 ten years, and you publish it, and it's a wild success. <laughs> and then everybody says, "Where's the next one?" And you're like, "Guys, that took me ten years. Oh, exactly. I, I can't, you
0: want, what do you mean you want it now? May I answer? May I turn the tables on you and say, Jason? Say, Jason, what are you reading this week? I'm glad you asked that question, I you Glenn. Would be.
1: I am reading uh, a few things, um, although not as many as you, but not as few as Scott, who's a oh. Uh And I also have a new Kindle, so I have one more device, so I'm now only 100 e-readers behind Scott instead of 101. <laughs> Keep trying,
2: Jason. You I can know,
1: catch up. I can catch up. I have a... Uh, I have, I've been reading All Clear, which is the second half of the Connie Willis novel that began with Blackout, which is the next book in, in this universe that includes to say nothing of the dog oh good okay um and, and it's it's basically about the Blitz the London Blitz um, and what I what I would say to the readers who are considering reading it is um, blackout and all clear are one book split in two there's it, you, you, there's nothing I mean th- it's one book split in two and I made the mistake of reading the first book and then not reading the second book for several months. And I was hopelessly lost, and it's taken me um, a while to remember what happened in the other book. So I'd recommend that if you read these books, um, don't wait. Just blow, blow through both of them and consider it a gigantic book. So that's what I'm reading, and I just finished um, the second book in the Millennium Trilogy, Stig Larson's oh. The Girl Who Played With Fire.
2: I've not um, read any of those.
1: Well, so, you know, they're good, but one of the funny things about them is that the guy died. He wrote these three novels. Speaking of people having novels and, and, and then in, in the can, it's he wrote these three novels and then he died. And but, then they were published and became wildly successful. The problem is, I mean, not that it's hurt his sales, obviously. And yeah. I think I've said this on a previous podcast. The problem is they really could have used an editor. Oh, God, and, yes. And And I feel like they were left untouched because – because he's, he's dead.
0: dead oh but you dead. know the other thing is the english and the translation are, i'm sure oh, the is. translation yeah. is there, problematic there's but a wide the, there's a wide condemnation by people who are bilingual that the english translation that was published especially the first book is really radically not i wouldn't say different but it's a it's there are radical changes from the actual suite not the na- you know major narrative but like the text and so forth because they wanted to get the book out so fast right, and right. it's kind of Kind of bad compared to the I, original. I
1: would imagine, given how successful the, that they are, that maybe at some point they'll retranslate, and they might even, <laughs> you know, they might Have even special f- edition give it give it an edit right for the Penguin Classic version oh of the God. girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah, it's one of those but,
0: many books in which you're like, good. God, but I mean, bad
1: translation does not it does not explain the fact that we spend whole paragraphs talking about how much ram is in her 90 her 2001 era power book.
2: Yeah. I have realized that I am in fact reading another book if anyone cares.
1: Uh yes, please. <laughs> what book go. is that? No, have care. you been have you been reading these books while we've been talking? <laughs> yes. What is the book, Scott?
2: Uh it is called So I I spent uh, a while reading the like 13 of the Vos- Vorsorgian books or whatever. Vorsogin, Vorsogian. There you are. I still, I still can't say it. Bless you. Um, and so I got – I was overwhelmed by it. So I said I need to read something completely different.
1: I read a different. couple of those too. But I yes. didn't even want to mention that because, like, <laughs> yes, I read those too.
2: I, I, I needed something completely different. So I picked up a book called uh, Thus Was Adonis Murdered. Uh, which is by oh. Sarah Caldwell, and uh, it is about these four lawyers, or I guess barristers, in eighteenth century New York. No, no, oh. this is like uh, uh, like nineteen eighties England, and okay. uh, they uh, solve mysteries. Ooh. So that's what it is about.
1: All right, great. Check and that. so next book club, and this is a note for all of you listeners out there, as well as for people like Dan Morin who are slackers. Oh, he's Our probably next- not
2: even listening.
1: Probably not, because he's that much of a slacker, and he's sad that he can't. He, he's illiterate, so he's <laughs> unable to hear. Um, that poor guy. Yes, stories of your life and others by Ooh. Ted Chang, uh, along with uh, a. Along with a uh, novella he wrote called The Life Cycle of Software Objects, I believe. Yes. Which is available online for free and we'll put a link in the show notes on theincomparable.com.
0: I have the beautiful, beautiful, slightly expensive... Uh, print edition of the book because I like him so much I wanted to buy it. It's, he's being published by a small press, I believe, and I think it's local here to be in Seattle, and I bought that, and it's it's a novella, novella, uh, novella but it's um, a gorgeously illustrated and a gorgeous piece of printing, so I actually recommend the print book for once. All right. I'm, look- well, I'm looking forward to that discussion because well, I have
2: many opinions me All too. Right. and that's
1: a short story collection so if you're not used to reading short stories i encourage you to give it a try actually one of the, my favorite things to do every year is buy the year's best science mm. fiction short stories collection yes. if you don't usually read short stories i think ted chang a very interesting author i think it's worth reading at the very least if you don't buy stories of your life and others i would encourage you to seek out our our link to the life cycle of software objects which will give us something meaty to talk about um a uh, little pre, little preview. I think it's actually not one of his strongest works. I, I think I, there's stuff in the "Stories of Your Life" I, and others that are much better. But. I concur. Yes. <laughs> all right. Shh, don't tell anybody.
2: Ooh. And also, you should, uh, the story of your life and others, uh, persevere through the first story
0: because I did not think the first story was very good. I've forgotten which one. It is and yes. Well, we'll, gets, we'll, we'll it, t- I have some, some I love great, that. I will there's talk. There's some we'll mind blowing stuff it. in there. I'm yes, trying not will. to say things now. I will stop. We will
1: talk about it <laughs> on the next on the next book club podcast. So that's your assignment, dear reader, dear listener, oh, uh, listeners who can read. Uh, there's one listeners thank you out there um and then the only other thing i wanted to do before we before we went away was to remind people uh if if you've stuck with us this long and you're just not tired of us yet that if you go to the incomparable.com or to riff you can see the iriff that we generated which is 20 minutes of myself glenn dan morin and And Steve Lutz, uh, making fun, Mystery Science Theater 3000 style, of a uh, a sci-fi western short from the 30s called The Phantom Empire Chapter 5. And uh, it turned out pretty well. So uh, it's a dollar on RiffTracks.com to download. And if you don't want to pay a dollar, hang out, wait around. You know, in a few months, we'll post it for free. But for now, it's one buck. So... Thank you for this discussion of the dream of perpetual motion, guys. It was Thank a lot you. of fun. I, 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 my us. mind has been expanded.
2: Me too. Mine has been digitized.
1: <laughs> Are you a perpetual motion machine now in a I Zeppelin? Am.
0: Scott is I'm powering am. my computer. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> that voice is coming from inside the computer. No. Ah! All right. So until next time, on that note, man your Zeppelins, turn on your perpetual motion machines. Um, Glenn Fleischman, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much. And Scott, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for recommending this book. And it only took us like six months to get around to it.
2: (laughs) Well, I I thank you both for reading it and and sticking through. Unlike some. Unlike some. Who shall remain Dan
1: (laughs) (laughs) This has been The Incomparable Podcast. Of course it has. There is nothing else that could compare. Until next time, this is Jason Still saying thank you.
2: I I won't understand this podcast until I listen to the podcast about this podcast explaining it.
1: So basically, our next podcast should be the podcast about the podcast about the dream of perpetual emotion.
2: Yes.